0: Netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. This podcast is proudly brought to you by ColorFront. ColorFront's leading onset dailies and express
1: dailies systems deliver integrated production proven dailies tools with state of the art color and image science, leading camera raw support, and simultaneous faster than real time deliveries in all common file formats visit ColorFront.com.
2: Thanks for joining us for this FX podcast. The FX podcast is where we talk one-on-one with top visual effects artists doing cutting-edge work. We dig deep into the technical side, advance the craft of visual effects, and pay respect to the hardworking people creating amazing work. This podcast is your opportunity to hear directly from the source, from the front lines of visual effects. Be sure to check out our other podcasts at fxguide.com slash podcasts. Uh, this is Jeff User, and joining me on the line is Mike Seymour. Mike, how are you, my friend?
0: Good, sir. How are you?
2: Good. So I'm excited about this podcast because I have turned many people on to the Dr. Alvi Ray Smith podcast, and oh, uh, both online and in person, just in talking about it. And everyone who I've turned on it on to has come back to me and said, thank you. That was amazing. I've seen people mentioning online that they've listened to it more than once. Uh, and you mentioned in that podcast that you wanted to talk to Jim Blynn. And here we are.
0: Yeah, no, look, I, um, I mean, at the risk of sounding completely uh, sycophantic and gushing, um, yeah, talking to these guys is just awesome. And Jim Blynn is certainly uh, very high on a list of people in my life I hoped one day I would talk to. <laughs> um, I actually let you in on a little secret, Jeff. When I uh, first was hiring at a company doing computer graphics, we were actually writing ray tracers back in the day and I was just one of the panel of, like, you know, your sort of various interviews you had to get through. When you got to mine, one of the questions I asked people was, did they know who Jim Blynn was? Because it gave me a really good reading straight away whether they read research papers or not. If they didn't know who Jim Blynn was, well, you know, it's pretty likely that they weren't somebody that we wanted to have um, on the team because he was so instrumental in so much stuff, and not least of which is, like, he invented bump mapping, helped invent environment mapping. Um, you know, his, uh, there are so many shaders that are just directly a result from him. But yet, and, and I know this is really going to resonate with you, he devoted much of his life to helping with space exploration, which I know is something that you, like, really cared a lot or care a lot about.
2: Yes, I enjoyed that part of the interview talking about the uh, JPL time and, uh, and the simulations uh, and, and the love and care that went into the simulations. Um, yeah, I mean, let's just run down a few of the things. And there's a story online that people should check out um, that goes along with this podcast with so a lot of examples and and more stories that even fit in the podcast. I mean, probably the thing for me that stood out was when I started listening to the podcast, I, I realized that, you know, we all know Moore's Law. The number of transistors on an integrated circuit doubles approximately every two years or 18 months, depending on who you listen to. Um, but then there's Blinn's Law, which I knew of, but I didn't put two and two together. I knew that it was called that. And that is, as technology advances, rendering time remains constant, which I think anybody who's worked in production certainly understands that, that we get bigger, better, faster machines, the render farm doubles, and yet everything still takes the same amount of time because we just make things more complicated.
0: You know, the great thing about that is it would be wrong to think that Jim Blinn is somebody who is an academic or somebody that was just interested in research um, the very fact that his law pertains to what it's like in production I think is just one of the most illuminating aspects. I'm glad, glad you brought that up because this is a guy who devoted his life to helping bridge between those who are writing and developing and you know, coming up with the algorithms and those that were actually working. And he himself was very much, though this might sound weird, this he was very much into production, but the production that he was mainly involved in was that of after he'd become incredibly well-known and published immensely, he devoted a lot of his time to producing uh, educational animations to explain the concepts of physics and maths as a kind of a passion piece. Um, And he says in the interview that this was the project he was born to do. And that may sound like a weird thing, but I've got to say, like, this is somebody that could have uh, ended up with multiple Academy Awards, could have done whatever, but he thought it was really important to help educate and spread the word and you know make life sort of easier for people so even though the guy clearly um as he talks about in the uh in the uh, podcast can if you need to get into um spherical trigonometry he's also like a just a really down-to-earth guy who just wants people to love computer graphics and produce cool imagery it's he's a great guy
2: yeah i mean people, really again i'll say again check out the story because there's stuff that is not in there like for example the teapot stuff the story about the the famous teapot that we all know and love and see demonstrated in every 3D demo since the beginning of time.
0: Yeah, I've got uh, to say, um, the, the imagery on there, just so if I can just sort of point this out to some people, I, I have known some of Jim's imagery, in particular as a strawberry, which was pivotal in his paper in SIDGraph for explaining bump mapping. Never seen it reproduced this well. Um, I showed him what I had seen, and I'd seen it in Foley Van Dam, and a bunch of textbooks over the years, umpteen times. I've seen it in pdfs and on the web and he was like oh no that's that's like third generation i'll get you an original and so a lot of these images uh you're seeing in a quality i've not seen in my entire life like seriously the sorts of satin and stuff i'd see them when they'd come off a one-inch machine he went back to the original digital files for this story so it's not just you know you might think well yeah obviously i know his work because he's so famous but with exception maybe one or two images most of these images are at a quality level i've never seen before Um, so it's just great
2: yeah, and, and and every the amount of things that he's touched that we use every day, or you know that as you know, growing up watching all the space missions and things and seeing simulations that he had done. That of course the networks were starving for imagery for anything like that. Um, you know, just showing them over and over again. And you know, it's just everything about what we do right now. These two guys, this this series of podcasts you're doing, I just love. So, kudos. Thanks.
0: We were calling it the Founder Series, so uh, we hopefully to do more of them. And I've got to say, when, um, when we published the r similar, a lot of people went, okay, so we need to talk to Jim Blinn. And I was like, because Jim isn't actually...
2: I'm working on it. I'm working yeah, on it.
0: But he's actually kind of yeah. hard to get to. Um, he actually now got a website, uh, which we've got in the story. But after he left Microsoft, he, yeah, he was not an easy guy to get hold of, but uh, we did, and he was incredibly generous uh, with his time.
2: I got a kick out of the uh, mention in this podcast about punch cards and you guys having to explain what <laughs> punch cards was. My uh, When I was growing up, my dad ran the computer, uh, IBM 360 computer lab at uh, Shenley Distillers in Kentucky. Uh, and I used to go play chess with punch cards against the big mainframe. Wow. Where you'd literally type the move in on a, on a punch card. And so I was very familiar with them. And in fact, I'm always fascinated by the fact that you know just at that one place he worked at two places in the area that had IBM 360s and you know there were rooms full of people that punch carded there were just you know rows after rows of these punch card machines and hmm. they weren't small and they're all where are they they're all gone they're all i guess destroyed
0: yes you know i i tweeted this week that uh, just as an aside there's a uh, pixar image computer up for sale on uh, ebay for oh, like 15 that. grand
2: i saw that we've got to get you up i, I was when i was up in san francisco um, a few years back, I went to the museum up there in uh just outside of San Francisco, the computer museum, and they right. had basically one of everything you know if you forget crays and i b m three sixties and punch card machines and boxed copies of mosaic and <laughs> you know mozilla um uh, Apple you know products from every generation looked like if I had kept everything over the years, everything I've ever owned in that regard but anyway yeah that'd be a, it'd be a cool place to visit if you're ever up that way next time.
0: Yes. Well, I do tend to find my way up to Northern California. <laughs> yeah, you in. do.
2: So what else have you been doing? You've been uh, The new term's going well over at PhD, I assume? It's FX PhD? going
0: very well. Actually, uh, I'm glad you mentioned that as well, because I wanted to um, just do a plug, if I can, for if you are a member of FXPHD, and I know a lot of people that listen to this podcast are, if you tell a friend about PhD and uh, they're not a member of uh, PhD, uh, if you get them to sign up, um, they can actually put your username in at the time that they join, There has to be the time they join. And uh, within about seven days, we'll give you a full course credit. So in other words, if you were doing some courses and you got a mate to join PhD, if they put your username in under the referring member part of um, their sign-up thing, uh, you'll get an entire bonus course free. uh, And you know what? Not just one. Get five people to sign up. We'll give you five courses.
2: That's if you're a member and you get somebody else to join. That's the way that works. Yeah.
0: So um, and if you're about to join and you have a friend who's a member, then feel free to put their name on. I'm not going to get uh, get get medieval on you uh, as to who did what, but uh, I, I obviously we do it as a way of encouraging you to um, suggest PhD to other people. But you have to do it at the time that you join up, because otherwise, honestly, we get people emailing us, oh, somebody joined up two years ago that uh, said that they were going to put my name down and they forgot, and can we get a free, it's like, sorry, I, I can't really do that. <laughs> right, right, um, right. But yes, at well, the time you, um, it's the time you place the order, and uh, if you are a PhD member, just go into the uh, student union part of the, um, of the forums, into the student news and information section. You'll see John has uh, the details there. If you're any doubt as to what to do, but it's pretty simple. Just at the point at which they sign up, there's a place to put a promotional code, which I think we've only ever had one or two of, very rare, and then there's a referring member uh, bit. Just sort of put their username in PhD
2: in there. Right, right. And SIGGRAPH obviously coming up soon, so all this Ooh, kind of yes. ties in nicely to that too because yeah. these guys have been very active the uh, in SIGGRAPH over the years.
0: Yeah, Jim Blinn has been um, a legend uh, in Sidgraph and I think he's been to every one of them. I actually worked it out the other day. SIGGRAPH this year is our 38th SIGGRAPH. I did the maths because the first one was in 74 in Boulder, Colorado. So in 2014, it'll be the 40th anniversary. So this is our 38th SIGGRAPH. And um, Jim Blinn uh, was going from 74. I think he got his... Uh, in bachelor in like 70 and uh, 78, he got his PhD um, at the University of Utah, but he was doing computer graphics back at University of Michigan. Um, so yeah, because in 76, he published uh, reflectance mapping or environment mapping. And then he worked out, hey, wouldn't it be a good idea if we had things as faceted um, objects uh, in terms of modeling in 77 and then published bump map in 78. And he was doing the flybys in 79 and then was, went up to Lucasfilm briefly and then came back, as, as you'll hear in the story, uh, because uh, JPL basically said, "Whatever it takes to keep you here, uh, we'll do it." and of course his demands weren't money. Uh, it was uh, buy me a better computer and a better graphics card." so
2: <laughs> yeah you know that, that the, the whole the, the, one of the things I meant to mention after the Alvy Ray Smith podcast is the, um, the relationship of the and this kind of ties into that museum I was talking about because that area up there was such a hotbed of activity and still is. But Alvi Ray Smith mentioned Janaid Sheikh at at um, yep. Ampex at the time, who of course has gone on to do Abacus and Acom and you know a bunch of products there and a lot of people in the business know him over the years. Um, the history of those you know the people working on these products and how intertwined they were or how their paths kind of crossed in and out. It's
0: fascinating to me. Oh, yeah, because, you know, let's not forget that uh, we're also talking about Jim Clark, who would go on to become SGI and Netscape. Um, and he was uh, University of Utah, I'm pretty sure. And, and, ah, uh, yes. I mean, the, the uh, actually, he was at Evans & Sutherland now. And, uh, and Evans and & Sutherland was also um, home to John Warnock, who went on to become Adobe and... Uh, and a bunch of those guys also were at um, Xerox Park, which, of course, led into a lot of stuff happening at Apple. There's just tons yep. of stuff all interrelated there. Though, I, I, Maybe as an American, you can answer this. Why Utah? Why does the University of Utah the center of the universe? I've not actually had anyone adequately explain that to me.
2: I don't know. I would almost have to guess at that time there must have been some it, – would it be military? I mean, I'm just guessing.
0: I mean, I have nothing against Utah. Utah. I think Utah is probably a really, really great place. And I certainly don't, you know, for a second want to sound like it shouldn't be at Utah. It's just that it seems to me that Utah is um, awesome, just not, you know, New York or L.A. or San Francisco or just any one of a countless number of sort of, you know, it's terrific. I think it's a really great, great place. But I just always would have thought, you know, because today you'd be thinking – you know, I guess you could argue the same thing about Microsoft up in Seattle, or, um,
2: you, know, yeah, or three, you know, or 3M and Xerox being in Minnesota.
0: Yeah, but um, yeah, the University of Utah, center of the friggin' universe when it came it, to it, the history of our industry. Yeah, and maybe I'll get there one day. Apparently, uh, it's uh, it's a gorgeous place.
2: Anyway, we should get into the interview. All right, so Mike, why don't we just jump into the interview here? Uh, you obviously talked with Dr. James Blinn.
0: Thank you so much for joining us because it's a a great honour to have you uh, to talk to. I was going to see if I could jump way back uh, to the University of Utah where you got your PhD in 78 and of course that must have been where you met Ivan Sutherland. I was wondering what was it like back then in 78 because when you started your bachelor's degree there wasn't even a computer science degree to be offered, right? It was just you did physics and communication for your bachelor's.
1: Um, yeah, that was at the University of Michigan, where, yeah. where actually I did a lot of stuff before going to Utah. Um, they didn't have a computer science department at the time, but uh, they had something called communication science, or something like that. But I started out as, in, in physics, <clears throat> and I was able to get actually a double major in physics and communication the sciences, I called it.
0: So you get to Utah, in, and it is now computer science, and Utah University has a such a central role in the evolution and history of uh, computer graphics. Was it an exciting time back then, or did you feel like it was a, more of a corner of the industry? I mean, looking back, it was the center of the universe.
1: Uh, well, it certainly was exciting, and, and I feel like I kind of got there at, at the optimal time for me anyway. I got there at about the same time that they bought their first uh, ENS picture system, which was a 3D uh, line drawing uh, hardware that did 3D uh, rotations and stuff in real time, and about the same time as they got the first uh, frame buffer going. Before then, uh, they had done a lot of research in rendering, but it was all uh, kind of offline in the sense they had to like take a time exposure of a TV screen in order to get an image out. And so I got there at the time when we were first able to see the uh the uh image you know on a frame buffer uh, as it was produced and uh also you know they the funding for the main computer graphics research was starting to uh starting to shrink, and so I was able to kind of get there when the good equipment was and get finished before the funding disappeared
0: <laughs> now I'm right in saying Ivan Sutherland was uh central at utah before he moved to Caltech, and of course became involved in jpl and can you tell me what it was like because ivan sutherland is such a legend for obviously evans and sutherland and the role that they played um jpl what started around 77 so this is all happening around the time that you're finishing your phd
1: yeah um ivan uh, had left utah just before i got there so i didn't interact with him uh at that time Although there was a, um, he he actually called back, I guess, to Martin Newell uh, asking for somebody to help him make a a, a test image for uh, a uh, presentation he was making, and so I did that for him while I was a graduate student, uh, sort of, uh, you know, <clears throat> remotely. He was at at uh, he was in California. I think he was not at Caltech yet. He was at. Uh, forget the name of the research institute out, out, out on the coast. <clears throat> anyway, uh, so I sort of got a, uh, roughly acquainted with him by then. And uh, when I graduated from Utah, he was um, had just started his uh, tenure at Caltech. And so I called him up and said, Hi, I'm interested in maybe joining your department at Caltech. But to be honest with you, what I'm really interested in is uh, JPL, because JPL is uh, run by Caltech and I was interested in the space exploration side of things. And so he said, well, that's interesting because some guy at JPL had just gotten a set of equipment that was a duplicate of what was going on at Utah. And so he's looking for somebody to run it. And so you can come out and become a postdoc at, at uh, Caltech and uh, teach a course and then you know spend half your time there and half time at uh, JPL Doing stuff with this new uh, equipment.
0: So I'm right that JPL had only just started. How did? How did you, when did you first hear of JPL? Because we, of course, link you very closely with JPL. But when did you first hear of it? The, was, uh, it was
1: 19, 19, 1977, June uh, or July, beginning of July,
0: 1977. And and you went there at that stage. Did you know that? Or was there any discussion about being involved in the flyby simulations, or was that to come later?
1: Um, you know, it happened very early on. Um, I'm not sure, uh, if I knew that beforehand, but fairly shortly after I got there, um, I got hooked up with, uh, um, a guy named Charlie Colhase, who was the, uh, project, uh, manager of the Voyager project. And he had actually made a computer animated movie of the Voyager flyby couple of years earlier when they were demonstrating the uh the mission uh it was a black and white line drawing made with a film plotter with a governor another, another guy named paul penzo and so uh i saw that film and then i saw we had the NS picture system which could do that in real time and we had the frame buffer which uh i had been doing research in uh surfaces and so you know, it, it was just kind of fell in my lap that this is the obvious thing I must do now is to make a shaded image version of this movie with texture mapping on the surface of the, uh, on the planet.
0: It was at a time when computer graphics was so young that am I not right in saying that for many people who started to see those JPL flybys um, in the popular press, in the news and stuff, many people really actually thought that they were actual footage because, of course... The news organizations didn't really have much to run with, so your material got got heavily uh, used in the popular press, didn't it?
1: Well, it was yeah shown on, on uh, you know the TV stations as part of their their news broadcast, and I guess a lot of people didn't quite know where it came from. Um, there was a story I heard that so, you know there were two Voyager spacecraft that went out to uh, you know Jupiter and Saturn, uh, and they got there about six or eight months apart. But uh, for people who didn't know that some people actually thought that the movie was made by one of the spacecraft watching the other one go oh, by. <laughs> it,
0: it's, uh, it's hard to imagine now because everyone seems to be so technically literate, but back then this was so revolutionary and so new, and uh, and for many people, they would have ca- ca- characterized that footage as photoreal because uh, this really was the sort of the state of the art. Um, let me ask you this. The... Uh, the period that you're at JPL and, and when you're doing this work, how how hard was it to be accurate? Because you're working in an environment where a lot of people would have cared a lot about the accuracy of the work that you were doing. It's not like a, a film where if it looks good, it's valid. Was there a lot of debate on the accuracy of your material?
1: Well, um, not in the sense that anybody uh, asked me to make it accurate because I made it accurate on my own, under my own steam, basically. Uh, the thing you realize about the Voyager flyby animations is JPL never actually requested me to do this. Uh, oh, really? I was uh, the the equipment that I used was, uh, say, a duplicate of what was uh, at uh, at Utah at the time, and it was purchased kind of with uh, funds left over at the end of the fiscal year by a guy who uh, thought that'd be cool to do computer graphics, but wasn't sure exactly what you know could be done with it, and so there was no official project to do this animation, and it was completely kind of like a, 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 a backroom sort of thing. Uh, Charlie uh, Colhase, as I say, was a mission planner for Voyager, and so he knew the details of what was going to happen when. that, and, and he thought it would uh, be really cool to make the movie, and so I uh, spent a lot of my time making it as accurate as I could, and in fact, it was in some sense easy to do because uh, the laws of motion and the physics and the geometry and so forth were quite, you know, well-known and well-established. But, um, you know, the uh, planetary surfaces early on, we used the paint program to draw artist impressions of what we thought they looked like. Later on, we were able to uh, use actual photographs to make more accurate uh, views of the textures. But when I made the movie, um, JPL in a certain sense didn't know what to do with it. The... uh, The head of the public information office didn't even realize we were doing it and wasn't sure, you know, what to do with it. And it just happened that Charlie was going back to NASA headquarters to fill in the NASA head administrator uh, on the upcoming flyby, uh, you know, what what was going to happen and, you know, what to expect to, you know, present to the press and so forth. And he brought along this film and said, oh, by the way, here, take a look at this film. And they had a NASA that, hey, this is great. Let's make a whole bunch of copies of this film and use that as a part of our press kit. <laughs> and the public information office kind of felt like they'd been, you know, uh, short-circuited, I guess, <laughs> at that point. So uh, anyway, we had a bunch of... We, well, you know, actually, the story was we uh, they said, you know, send us the, the negative of the film, and we'll make the copies here and send them out. So we sent them the negative of the film, and... For some reason or other they lost the negative, so I had to make another <laughs> another uh <laughs> uh run of the of the uh program to make another negative. We made our own copies and and so once the the first Voyager by Jupiter happened uh we uh, kind of established that you know there were cool movies to be made, and so after that they there was a, a new one expected to be made for every mission after that. <laughs>
0: I want to talk about your research in this period of the late 70s. The first SIDGRAPH ever was 74. Uh, I think in 76, was it, that you presented your uh, work on reflectance and environment mapping? Is that like my timeline right? Right, yeah. Yeah. So environment mapping, I'm sorry, but like that and bump mapping, they just seem so fundamental to my understanding of computer graphics these days. It's hard to imagine a time before they existed. And do you want to give me some of the background on how you did first... Uh, environment mapping, and then uh, a year or two later, I think you presented your paper on on bump mapping. I'd, I'd love to hear the story of how that came out to be.
1: Um, e- environment mapping was uh, actually primarily Martin Newell's idea. He was my thesis advisor at Utah, and uh, we were teaching the computer graphics course at Utah at the time. I uh, he was a professor there, and I was a you know teaching fellow, and uh, so we spent a lot of time talking about rendering and geometry and so forth preparing for the lectures, and I think we taught each other more than, you know, we taught the students, in a sense. His his background and my background kind of meshed in terms of I knew stuff he didn't and he knew stuff I didn't. And so he kind of came in one day, and, you know, one day he said, you know, he was just thinking, you know, this morning while he was taking a shower, that what if you were to take, you know, the calculation for the uh, the lighting and uh, instead of doing the regular product with a light source that uh, give you the color of the surface, what if you took the light and kind of reflected it backwards kind of like a mirror reflection and you could project that you know picture uh, that uh, off to infinity and, and look that up in a map to you know find out what would be reflected in that particular spot and I thought hey that sounds really neat and I worked out the actual geometry of the map for it which was pretty simple and I already had a program that would render things so I just was able to Slap this in as a replacement for the rendering uh, thing, and presto, we got reflections on the, on the surface of the teapot.
0: In fact, in, in '74, you you'd have... written a paint program, hadn't you? So you could even paint those reflections.
1: Yeah, well, actually, that's how we did the first reflections, where you just kind of painted some sort of smeary-looking uh, window-like thing uh, on there just to kind of see if it worked. And so uh, that's where reflection mapping, you know, the first uh, reflection mapping came from. It was helpful having the frame buffer there because we could, you know, see the images as they were produced and, you know, using a paint program to generate data and so forth. So that was, that was uh, very convenient. It would have been harder to do if we had to do the old technique of taking time exposures off the CRT <laughs> and so forth.
0: <laughs> and but, those... Um,
1: you know, I had this pro- program that, that was kind of a test bed for, for rendering things that I could slip in different functions for the uh, calculation of the intensity pretty easily.
0: Yes. And and so that's in that paper you deliver in seventy six. In seventy seven, I think you come back with the idea of surface facets. Uh, Is that right?
1: Bump mapping. Are you talking bump mapping? Uh,
0: Well, even before that, uh, well, I think it was bump mapping. Oh, there was
1: yeah, there was the yeah. Well, I uh, spent a lot of time uh, poking around in the uh, the engineering library. Trying to figure out better reflection models. Best um, one at the time when I got there was by Buitong tong Song, who uh, came up with a, uh, a calculation of you know how light reflects off surfaces, mm-hmm. simulation of that so that you could get highlights as well as you know diffuse reflection. And it was mostly the function was constructed to simulate roughly how they knew it worked, but it wasn't based on any uh, very complex physical simulation. And so I poked around in the engineering library, and I stumbled across some uh, something called the Journal of the Illumination Engineering Society. And in 1920, 1920, they had an article where somebody had actually measured, you know, how much light is reflected off of a surface in all the different directions, given light hitting it from the surface, and we these kind of... Circular diagrams with a lump sticking out, which was the uh, the, uh, was the specular reflection portion. This has
0: to be the original so BRDF, then.
1: Well, it was certainly an easy early one. It's hard yeah. to say original. <laughs> I mean, I, I was there's always precursors to everything you see, <laughs> and so the first one, it was the earliest one I came across. First one I came across, and I thought, this is really cool. Uh, let me try to just digitize this data. To you know, just make a table out of it so I could do you know a lookup to uh, emulate this function. Unfortunately, digitizing pictures was not easy to do in those days, and so I spent some time with Xerox machines and trying to blow up the pictures big enough so I could see them. So forth, but meanwhile I was poking around, looking at lots of other uh, articles, and I started, started finding more and more more recent articles that actually had a physical model behind them, and came up with a article by guy named uh, Torrance and a guy named Sparrow from Minnesota who uh, had a, the model of, of uh, microfacets on the surface and uh, the statistical effect they had on reflection. And their calculation was kind of horrendous to do because it used spherical trigonometry and a whole bunch of other uh, geometrical things that would be difficult to calculate. So I spent weeks and weeks with trigonometric identities and so forth, trying to figure a simple way of doing it, and finally figured out, you know, redrived it in a way that made it much more simple to calculate. And so I was able to stick that in as the torrance sparrow reflection model for uh, how highlights and you know, more accurate versions of highlights on, on surfaces.
0: And so from there, the next step is bump mapping, which I think you published the following year in 78, in um, which was yeah, just I guess remarkable. So. I mean, it's yeah, that
1: was that was pretty cool. i was I was really happy with that. <laughs> what, what, that. that was that was uh, generated originally because um, my interest has always been in uh, science visualization, I guess you call it nowadays, that is making pictures of various uh, uh, scientific uh, things. And I was trying to make a picture of um, a water molecule and you know two two atoms of uh, hydrogen and one atom of oxygen. Uh, in the proper relative sizes and so forth, and, you know, th- that's been made before. And what I, I was trying to see, suppose I can make a texture for the surface of this thing. Uh, you know, uh, atoms, you know, typically portrayed as fuzzy fuzzy blobs or, you know, yep. clouds of electrons floating around and so forth. So anything you do with, with a, with a, uh, a picture of an atom is somewhat metaphorical. Uh, but I thought, how could I make this using texture mapping look like, sort of like a ball of yarn, which was effectively the 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 visualization of the trails of the electron as they're whizzing around really fast. So I tried various drawings, uh, various textures to do this, trying to make it look like a fuzzy ball of yarn. And they all looked too solid surface because it it looked like, you know, a a, a shiny formica surface with with some streaks on the surface of it. And so I was kind of staring at that and said, why is this not looking bumpy? And, uh, I was kind of looking at my shoes at the time, and the shoes I was wearing had—they uh, were made of leather, but they actually had an embossed pattern in the surface. And I was looking at, them, sorry, looking at the highlights on them and, and realized, you know, what's making this thing look bumpy is not the actual displacement, how far the the surface is displaced, but it's the fact that it changes the angle of the surface from one place to the next. So I said. How about if I was able to take and make a texture that indicated how to nudge the surface normal from one spot to the next in order to, uh, and then plug that into the regular lighting equation? That would be a good approximation to it. And Sorry. so after a bunch of bashing around with that, I came up with the equation right when the frame buffer broke. Um, the frame buffer at Utah was the uh, prototype, basically, one that ENS made, and it was wire wrapped, and uh, it basically you know, the connections on it were, were kind of flaky any, into it.
0: Any wire-wrapped wire board was pretty pretty dodgy at yeah.
1: the, best of the time. And so uh, that was actually the year after I had gone to, uh, to New York Tech. And so I that Christmas, I guess it was, I <clears throat> flew out to New York Tech during Christmas break to use their frame buffer <laughs> to try out the idea because I didn't know for sure, you know, if it would work because our framework was broken. And so we did a really simple thing where we took a texture pattern and, just use the uh, brightness of that to nudge the x-coordinate of the, of the uh, normal a little bit and, and, and look promising enough. So when I went back to Utah and they finally fixed the frame buffer, then I was able to do the thing right. It's one of those things that's tricky to debug because if you get a sign wrong, you can look at the picture, and it looks okay kind of, but it looks weird. And so I was able to use the programmability of the frame buffer to uh, do a quickie animation the frame buffer was micro-programmed so that it would either scan out 512 by 512 pixels, which is the uh, highest resolution, or you could program it to uh, scan out a 64 by 64 subsquare. And so you had 16 of those things, and you could have it cycle between which of those 16 it was going to show from one frame to the next. So I was able to make a little 16-frame movie of a sphere texture map rotating. And that's the trick to make sure that the thing is actually working right. And, of course, the first time I had a sign wrong, and so you look at the thing rotating, it just didn't look like a real thing somehow. It was just kind of weird optical illusion. So once I fixed the sign and got the thing rotating, then I had this bumpy rotating sphere uh before me, and and you know, I was really actually literally dancing around in the room when I saw how cool it was.
0: <laughs> and so, this is just at the beginning of thirty-two bit frame buffers, or what we think of as a full color frame buffer. Oh, hell
1: no! This, this is a, this is a, this is an eight bit frame? buffer. Oh, it's buffer. still an eight bit <laughs> <32-bit> frame <laughs> <laughs> buffer. Because
0: yeah. NYIT did have a a full uh, color frame buffer, but they obviously started with eight um,
1: not at that time. I think it was the next year they got it, but that okay. was them. That wasn't me. So,
0: <laughs> so, so you're literally sitting around looking at, what, a pair of black or brown shoes, and this is the basis yeah. of
1: bump mapping. Yeah, right.
0: You still got the shoes?
1: <laughs> I'm not. No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I think I might have left them behind at Utah. Somebody said that they found a pair of my shoes at Utah uh, when I left because... Uh, I don't know if you've lived in where there's a lot of snow, but what typically <laughs> happens is uh, you have a pair of shoes at home and a pair of shoes at work, and you have a pair of boots that you wear from one to the next place, and you get to the place, and you take out boots, put on whatever shoes you've got at that location, and so uh, those pair of shoes kind of stayed at my office, actually, by accident when I finally left Utah.
0: Now, 79 is the flybys that we were talking about earlier, but did you also get involved with Xerox Park at all around this time, or not?
1: Not really. Mike? Um, my- contact with Xerox PARC was uh, a little sporadic. (laughs) Um, uh, We were kind of starting my career talking about Utah, which in fact was not nearly the beginning of my career in computer graphics. I was doing computer graphics at the University of Michigan for about six or seven years beforehand when I was just the last year or so I was at uh, Michigan. Um, I went out to visit a friend at uh in California who was working someplace else, but it was near Xerox Park and I kind of called up Willie Newman at Xerox Park to see if I could come and give a tour and uh, He wasn't available basically, and so I was kind of at, at the front door of Xerox Park, but nobody was there who knew who I was because I wasn't you know well known at all at the time, so I just kind of saw the building and then I went back to Michigan and did some more stuff um, when I was at at Utah. Um, Martin Newell, my thesis advisor, uh, had been a professor there for about two years, but he decided he was going to leave and go to Xerox Park to uh, uh, be a researcher there. And so I had to finish up my thesis really quick <laughs> before he left. So he went out to Xerox Park, so I had contact with him. And he and I had uh, talked about writing a textbook. And so I came out and visited him a couple times there and used the Altos to, as a, well, we tried writing a draft of the textbook, but we really didn't get very far into it. So I was there kind of as a visitor briefly. Um, and um, when I left, fiz- finished at, at uh, Utah, I, uh, I guess I was interested in going to work uh, at, at JPL, but I also interviewed at Xerox Park. And you know they were you know interested in me, but I was really much more committed to uh, space exploration than than uh, uh, what Xerox was doing at the time. So I, I decided to go to uh, to JPL.
0: Did you meet Dr. Ed Catmull at Xerox Park, or was that at NYIT?
1: Uh, Catmull, I don't think was ever at Xerox Park either. I'm sorry, he, I met uh, uh, Dr.
0: Was, Albie Ray Smith. Uh, my apologies. Uh,
1: no, he he was uh, the first time I met him was at uh, New York Tech this summer. 1976, where I was basically there as an intern, what would be called nowadays an intern summer job, uh, to go out and uh, do some stuff with their thing, and so he was there with four or five other uh, people. It was fairly early on in in their in their uh, project. Yeah, I actually ran into Ed briefly at Utah as he was leaving and I was arriving. um, I I was out there just as a visit uh, just before. I, I was there, and he was there, just uh, finishing up uh, talking to Martin Newell, and I, I was introduced to him at the time. Uh, but when he uh, was running the graphics program at at uh, at New York Tech, is when I you know got to know him better, and that's when I met Alvy for the first time. And did you ever just? Alvy was a really fun guy because he was he he, he knew. Uh, he had lived in New York for a while, and so he kind of knew where all the fun things were to do. And so, you know, we all piled in his car on weekends and went off to movies together in New York or went to uh, lectures. On. there There's a lecture series on the history of animation that we all went to.
0: I think you even briefly went up to Lucasfilm, didn't you? For a... or sort of...
1: Yeah, well, I was, that was uh, somewhat later uh, when oh, uh, I was at... Uh, at JPL we did the Voyager flybys and we did the uh, Cosmos a- animation for Carl Sagan's Cosmos project. And um it's about the time that Ed and Alvey was starting the project at the at, uh, at Lucasfilm. And we had this eight bit frame buffer at uh at uh, JPL and it was getting really constraining how much I could do visually with that because you couldn't do full color and and there was just a PDP 11, which was kind of a small machine for doing stuff. And they're getting all this neat equipment at, at uh, Lucasfilm. And so I finally decided um, maybe I owed it to myself to go someplace where you know, <laughs> graphics had more, you know, better equipment. And so I called up Ed and asked him if he, uh, you know, had a place for me at, at Lucasfilm. And he said, great, yeah, come on up and join us. It's about 1981, maybe. Uh, and it turned out, in fact, that uh, when I announced to JPL that I was leaving to go to work at Lucasfilm, the director of JPL uh, very kindly found that I had, you know, felt that I had something that, you know, JPL wanted, and so he asked me, you know, what would it take to keep me at JPL? And I said, well, you know, I need a, a decent frame buffer and a decent computer, because what I'm, you know, I'm using is too small, and so he actually told me he would spend his you know yearly director's discretionary fund to buy me a, a new frame buffer and a computer. And so here I was, you know, and, and I didn't feel, I felt like I was sort of committed to ed at the time, but still, uh, you know, JPL had this attractive thing, and so uh, I was kind of basically half time both places for about six months. Yeah, might- because I, 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 I wanted to, you know, fulfill, you know, my... I was to come and work with Ed, so Ed and I actually, during that time, we a, co-taught a course at Berkeley in computer graphics. But I was basically commuting back and forth between LA and San Francisco uh, once a week for that period of time. Finally, I realized, you know, my heart was really in the space exploration. And besides which, Saturn was coming up, and there was all <laughs> these cool data coming in for Saturn. It's, you know. If I stayed at JPL, I could make cool movies of Saturn, and I just, you know, I couldn't pass that up. So I decided to, to thank Ed for his generosity, but I needed to go back to my home at JPL.
0: I wanted to discuss the uh, well, the Cosmos series, but in the broader context, that a big thread of your entire career, if I could suggest it, has just been the role of educator, and not only educator, but sort of scientific uh, educator of a nature that's still accurate but accessible to the public. I mean, the Voyager stuff was accessible and, and eliminated so many people, but then there's the mechanical universe, the Carl Sagan Cosmos series, and then also uh, the mathematics or the project mathematics, or the Mathematica, I think it started as being called. Th- this love yeah, of education yeah. then goes into SIDGRAPH as well and, and spreading the knowledge. But I was wondering if we could talk about a couple of these educational projects, especially starting with the mechanical universe. You did an astonishing amount of work for that 52 half-hour series like what 500 sort of animations is that right
1: yeah there was almost eight hours total running time on this thing it was it was like the pinnacle of my career in that sense it was it, and it was this, it was a project that i was born to do and I've, I've been thinking about that since then and it's been amazing how that came about because um i'm in fact in the process of writing some autobiographical uh, descriptions of you know my adventures along the way to get there. But uh, when I was very young, there were a couple of uh, films that I saw that inspired me. One of them was called uh, Man in Space. It was a Disney film about uh, space exploration. And I was a big fan of Disney animation at the time and also a big fan of space exploration. But what struck me about it was how cool it was that they could use animation to teach people how the human body reacts to space and what it would take to make space travel possible so this is kind of like in the back of my mind from very early on and all the decisions that I made about where to go to school and what to do when I was at school and so forth somehow kind of magically conspired to give me the proper experience in the background to be able to do the mechanical universe project because I, it was very complex and I had to do know a lot of different things and I happened to have had that, the proper experience to do it. And, um, and it was it was just terrific, but it was pretty grueling because it was basically seven years, uh, seven days a week, uh, working around the clock, and uh, and just you know slowly one at a time, ticking off each animation. And fortunately, it was the project was run by a physics professor at Caltech, who uh, I became you know pretty close to in the process of doing the thing. We would meet actually every day at two o'clock in the afternoon. And it was my promise to myself that I would have something new to show him every day, and I did. And uh, we looked at storyboards, we figured out animations together, and I showed him you know various ideas for things. And uh, it was just this all total focus to, to get this this project going. And I'm really glad that I was able to be in the right place at the right time to make that work because it was it was pretty stunning.
0: Tell me, how did you make them? I mean, these drawings, which or rather animations, which were so uh, instructional, obviously from a communications point of view, you had the physics degree, the communications degree, and obviously the, the computer science. But, but hands on deck, how were you actually doing it? What was the sort of program, or how did you program it to be done?
1: Well, it was all you know, home-built software that I put together um, over the years and you know fine-tuned for that particular project. Uh, we had a VAX uh, 11780 computer, which was the one that uh, the head of JPL had gotten for me, and we had a, a, an RGB frame buffer that we put together. And we got a, uh, a, um, a one-inch uh, you know, Type-C videotape machine that I was able to figure out the engineering to do that and have that controlled by the computer. So basically I had a, uh, an animation program that uh, put together line, drawing, uh, line drawings on the screen. Uh, and I would set up keyframes for the different positions and angles for things. And, uh, and take the script of the, the animation and kind of time out how much time it, I wanted to go from one spot to the next. And then when I got that to look right as a line drawing, then um, I would set it up to uh, issue the data from each frame to a series of rendering programs that would render. I had you know, various 2- and 3-D rendering programs that I had put together to uh, do the rendering and set that up in a loop to render a frame, save it to disk, render the next frame, save it to disk. You know, very similar to, I guess, how things are done nowadays. And then I had a, a recording program that would take, uh, you give a, a, a copy of the script in a sense of how, which frame to put on the screen for how long, and and, and it would go through and whole frame drop the disk, signal a tape machine to record the frame, pull an extra off the disk, signal tape for, to record the frame. So it was just, uh, So that, you were
0: doing single frame edits onto a, Onto a one-inch machine, or
1: yeah, it was. It was actually a, it was a, a BVH twenty-five hundred, which was a Sony machine that was designed to do animation, and it was uh, it pretty much worked. But what it was is uh, <clears throat> when you, you now get into the geometry of how helical scan videotape machines work, but uh, when the tape is moving forward through the machines during normal playback, the uh, heads are making this diagonal stripe across the tape. Yep. Yeah, when the but when the uh, tape is not moving, the uh, the forwardmost of the tape is not accumulating, so the, the track of the head across the tape is uh, is um, at a different angle to the tape. So what the what Sony did was had a machine that had the the tape head on this little piezoelectric crystal that would move the head sideways, vibrate it uh, sideways uh, at the proper speed and rate to compensate for that, so you could record a single frame while the tape was not moving. Oh, wow. And so it was able to record a frame in about a third of a second and then bring the next frame, and you know, so it was, it was about half a second to three-quarter of a second per frame to do that. And that worked pretty well. It, it requ- yeah, the, the tape that came out of that was... Uh, you know, we had to go through a time-based corrector in order to in, in order to look good, but it, it it worked okay.
0: I feel so spoiled. And I came along in the days of abacuses, and we had, you know, the ability to, to play out 30 seconds of uh, of memory, and in one burst, it was uh, yeah, piece of cake. you young comparison.
1: kids have got it easy. Let me yeah. tell you, back in my day, <laughs> geez, you know, uh, recording animation is the, gi- the giantest pain on Earth until, you know, you could just play it back now on a computer. But, you know, Actually, the videotape machine was easy. That was that was luxury compared to doing it on film. For God's sakes, doing the Voyager animations and the Cosmos animations were all done on sixteen millimeter movie film, and that was a real pain because you had to set up. We had to set up a camera on a tripod aimed at the aimed at the CRT, and you know very carefully arrange it so that things centered properly. And then we had a, an animation camera set up so it would. Uh, and thread up the film and turn off all the lights in the room, lock the door, go across the hall and control the thing. Or Actually, I usually have stayed in the room with it and uh, slap the tape, uh, a digital tape of the pre-calculated frames up on a nine-track tape drive and run a program, put some loop in haul in the frame, click the shutter, haul in another frame, click the shutter, haul in another frame, click the shutter. And it would take between eight or ten hours of this t- uh, to record the entire Voyager flyby animation. And then you had to go and get the film developed and hope to God that you had the exposure right.
0: <laughs> and hope to God that someone then and, didn't lose the negative when you handed it over to the PR department. Yeah, right. And, <laughs> yeah, right. And
1: so the, the the nice thing about the videotape thing was you could record it, uh, at the thing and it, and you could still do insert edits if you needed to fix a frame. If there was a little bad section there that you didn't like, you'd go through and, and uh, overwrite uh, that with uh, insert edits to, uh, to change bad frames. I mean, that was... One of the things that uh, I did it, uh, for Cosmos was this uh, DNA replication sequence, which was also got god awful nightmare. It was like two or three weeks worth of round the clock uh, calculation once we even got the thing done, and uh, to see exactly what's going on. I was we recording. I was recording that, and it was going in there, and it would you know on film. It would click the frame, read a frame off the tape. Click the frame, and so forth. These are all pre-calculated, and I was just watching it. And a, real, and, a, and a bad frame came up, and I just hit the interrupt button quick enough so that it hadn't clicked the frame at the time. <laughs> I caught it. I caught the camera before I clicked that frame, and I looked at the bad frame and realized the next twenty frames were garbled for some reason or other. So I had to go back to the code. While the camera is still sitting there, figure out what I had done wrong, <laughs> fix the fix the bug in the software, recalculate those twenty or thirty frames, which took an hour or two. Uh, kind of put those back in there and, and essentially, you know, uh, digitally switch over to the new frames and clicked off those 20 frames on the camera and then switch back to the, the, the tape to, to do the old one. And that was, you know, hair-raising experience.
0: How closely were you actually working with Carl Sagan himself on the Cosmos series?
1: Oh, not incredibly closely. He, uh, he came by several times to talk about ideas that they wanted and so forth. Uh, and a lot of it was uh, through the producer named uh, uh, Greg Andorfer, I guess uh, was kind of like the day to day contact and also some of the artists who uh, did the artwork that we started with to digitize and animate uh, I worked with uh, John Lomberg a bit, but I met with him several times and he was uh, you know really happy with the stuff we were doing. I got a nice letter from him uh, <clears throat> thanking me for my uh, <laughs> it was funny it was the, the letter he sent me says uh, I would just dear Jim I would like to tell you that i'm I, I, when I first read it, I thought I he said, I've lost admiration for your, for your work. And I thought, what? <laughs> And if I read it again, he said, said, I am lost in admiration for your work. So I just read it wrong the first time. <laughs> <laughs> when
0: you get to the Mathematica project, or the Project Mathematics, as I think it was renamed, um, I'm sure mm-hmm. I've seen you in the footage of that, though it was uncredited, playing the trombone. Was that you
1: playing oh, the yeah. trombone? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was me. I played trom. Uh, Very, very amateur. I played. I played the trombone since you know junior high school, off and on, and uh, enjoyed it. But I'm not particularly good at it. But um, I was in the Caltech uh, wind ensemble, which uh, Caltech, being mostly a technical school, doesn't like have a big arts program. But they have several bands. Uh, They they had a jazz band and a wind ensemble, and uh, you know various other things like that. And because Caltech is not a big place, uh, the bands are sort of open to uh, faculty members as well as students and also other people in the community that, uh, you know, want to come by and just uh, have fun playing in a band. And so the, all of the parts of the music are filled out and so forth. And so for the, you know, like the 20 years I was at Caltech, I was in the, the wind ensemble or the jazz band and, uh, you know, got to be friends with the, the director and so forth. And when we had this uh program on sines and cosines one of the examples was you know, Fourier synthesis and how you can build up different wave shapes I thought it would be cool to uh, show what the wave shape of different instruments would be and so we got the, the wind ensemble to cooperate with us and we filmed, uh, filmed the, them you know, playing in a group and got several different single instruments to come and play a sample tone into a microphone which we digitized and this is what a clarinet sounds like, this is what a you know, flute sounds like, this is what a trombone sounds like and, uh, and so that worked
0: out quite nicely. <laughs> so uh, if I can, I want to shift gears from your work as an educator to some of your relationships with, um, with the industry, especially with SIDGRAPH. And obviously the film industry runs in parallel with SIDGRAPH in many respects, has changed a little bit over the years, but always there's been a great um, relationship between the academic community and the film community. And one of the great laws of that, film community is Blinn's Law of the Paradox of Efficiency. Do you want to explain what that is and when you came up with it? The idea of technology advances the render time remains constant?
1: Basically, yeah. Um, well, it was an observation that I made that, you know, <clears throat> as the computers get faster, then the the appetite of the artist gets bigger. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, frames always take between you know five and ten, ten minutes to make, although maybe more like an hour to make for some of them nowadays. But uh, uh, it's it's uh, more uh, an observation of, of... It's kind of like how patient you are to wait for the image. And five to ten minutes a frame is about all you can stand to wait to do an animation. And so when it was simple pictures for five to eight minutes a frame, that's what you made. When it was complicated pictures, you could make complicated ones, then you were able to wait five or ten minutes per frame and you made more complicated pictures.
0: In, in your um, shiny... Uh... Bright, shiny future, uh, 20, uh, 2000 article, looking forward to 2020. Uh, you predicted a bunch of stuff that was things you wanted to see happen. Um, so maybe not so much just specific problems in computer graphics you want to solve, but you predicted a bunch of stuff, partly in in the paper you said, because you reckon they were already happening. Um, and some of them were sort of more mathematical, like the end of linear maths on gamma-corrected signals. And I, and I hope we've got far enough now that that one can be ticked off the list, at least uh, in almost most circumstances. Uh, and yeah. and you also mentioned things like uh, flat screens. You kind of predicted iPads, which I thought was uh, interesting. There are a couple of other things that are in there that are more esoteric that I, I wanted to get your opinion on. One of them was the idea of content being stored as the database to be rendered rather than the pixel rendering itself. Could you explain that concept?
1: Uh, it's more the idea of um, rather than... Uh, Rendering, rendering the thing into pixels for playback, having the uh, having the uh, original database rendering the stuff in real time as you're watching it, which is basically what happens in computer games now. Uh, you know, the cutscenes and so forth might sometimes be pre pre rendered, but a lot of times in computer games, even cutscenes are are use the game engine to to render it on on the fly. And so, in a sense, that's you know, uh, it's you know, using uh, the real time rendering capabilities of whatever system you've got to, uh, rather than, you know, playback pre-canned frames, just have the computer models in there and the animation database for how they move and just re-render it as you're watching it instead of instead of uh, watching uh, static frames. That way you can do some adjustments to, you know, the viewpoint after the fact and, and whatnot. So, you know, computer games, to a large extent, are, are doing a lot of that nowadays.
0: Well, now we're 12 years into that cycle between your 2000 and 2012, and one of the other things that you mentioned is the you, you sort of hate the use or you said then you hated the use of special purpose graphics hardware you wanted everything to be on the cpu but that idea of the gaming engine is pretty much living and breathing because of gpu do you still have a an opinion that you want to see things move away from a graphics processor to a general purpose cpu well
1: um depends what you call a graphics processor versus a general cpu uh graphics processes are getting more and more general, and, and, and in fact, they become more like CPUs but, you know, <clears throat> designed for parallelism uh, more. The, the, the graphics processes at the time I was writing were just a bitch to, to program, and they did just, just one thing. And Sometimes when you're experimenting with new ways of rendering things or new ways of doing writing and so forth, uh, you would like to have a little more freedom to play around with the mathematics and try stuff out, and going beyond what the graphics processor had burned into the silicon. But since that time, you know, the whole idea of of, um, of uh, programmable, you know, graphics uh, uh, pipelines, um, uh, shader shader programming is the term I'm you know, looking for, um, <clears throat> that was not very current at the time, as I believe. And now shader programming is, uh, you know, a big step in that direction. Is, you know, basically you can write shaders to... Uh, uh, do whatever arithmetic you want, and uh, get much more flexibility and, and much more easy to program than, than you could at the time.
0: In that article, you also predicted what would become Google's massive book project in terms of digitizing, you know, the world's media and having it in digital form. But I guess the essence of that whole that article was just how optimistic you were about the future. This idea that of a bright, shiny future, and and the question that you asked in that paper is why does the future always have to be rusty? Um, yeah. Do <laughs> you still optimistic looking forward? I, I hope so.
1: Hard to say. Um, well, um, I think the future is going to be a lot better than what most movies portray it as being. <laughs> the whole uh, genre of science fiction and, and uh, futuristic programs, uh, movies, tends to all be dystopian, which is pretty depressing. And I'm hoping that, that you know the future can be fun again. And not, uh, not the uh, some horrible, you know, political uh, oppressive political regime, or you know, uh, robots taking over, or something like that. Uh, the future should be a fun place to to aspire to be.
0: You um you ended up uh going to Microsoft and becoming a fellow there, where Dr. alvieri Smith was also a fellow. Um you've left Microsoft. What do, what are you doing uh at the moment? You mentioned your writing. Is that an autobiography or what, what are you what are you doing? Yeah,
1: there? I'm I'm working on some autobiographical writing. Um basically going back looking at, you know, some of what we've discussed today, uh my how how I got to, to get to the Mechanical Universe project and the various uh, kind of lucky breaks I found along the way, and uh, also sort of interested in writing up sort of what the world was like in various eras of my experience, you know, like I just described, what was it like to have to record animation on a, on a movie camera, and what was it like to have to uh, use a IBM card solder in order to plot histograms of physics data, which is what I started out doing. Um, the sort of history of technology. You know, I think we're going to uh, have to. I, mean, I think
0: we're going to have to explain that because I actually know what a card reader is because I once punched out little bits to try and get a program to run on a card reader. But I mean, most people don't even know what a card reader is. Do you want to explain what that was? That you just referred to.
1: Well, back in the old days, um, <laughs> the, the main way of, uh, of uh, feeding input to computers was on punch cards, which were uh, about <clears throat> three by six-inch uh, rectangles of cardboard and you punched holes in them with a uh, particular machine. Different patterns of holes would uh, stand for different letters and numbers. There typically was like 80 columns across and uh, 12 rows of uh, of uh, holes. And uh, you would uh, punch out your program, for example, on the cards, one, one line per card, and the stack of cards that... Each card was a separate line in the program that you would feed into the, uh, the computer and the card reader, and it would read it in and execute the program. Uh, but in addition to using punch cards for uh, computer input, they were originally designed to do the United States Census in, I think, 1900, and uh, there are a whole bunch of machines that would just do various simple uh, operations on the cards without using a computer. For example, you could have a card sorter, <clears throat> which is what we had in the physics department at, at Michigan when I was there, that you would uh, set a little dial saying which column that you wanted to sort on, and it, would, uh, it had 10 little slots, and you would feed the cards in one end, and it would read the thing in, and depending on which number was punched in that column, it would put it in that particular slot. So a little card that had a one punched in it would go in slot number one. Well, cards that had a two-point in would go in slot number two and so forth, and you could sort your cards in numerical order uh, this way uh, using this mechanical device. It wasn't really a computer at all.
0: It's funny, you know, because in a way, that idea of how you encode the data, in this case physically in cards, is something that you return to time and time again in the sense that you got heavily involved in discussions on mathematical notation and... And I, I want to segue into that, if I can, just to finish up, because we mentioned uh, that you're possibly writing an autobiography or, or autobiographical material, but you've published many books, though normally by collections of columns that you did from the, uh, the original uh, uh, Jim Blinn's Corner. Um, right, yeah. And, and as I say, one of the ones that I really loved was a piece you published about notation. I think it was in the third book. Uh, where you basically just discuss the nature of of uh, how we have scientific or mathematical notation. Um, do you want to talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, that's kind of become my obsession too uh, these days. Um, I've always had a tough time understanding mathematics from mathematicians, and because uh, I just kind of think of it different in uh, a different way than than uh, mathematicians do, I guess. Um, and one of the the, the main things that computer graphics does is, you know, model shapes with mathematical equations and, uh, you know, all this, you know, bicubic patch modeling and so forth that like, the teapot was made out of. And uh, I became more and more interested in, in how mathematicians have, have studied the relationship between an, an algebraic equation and the geometric shape it represents over the, over the years. And a lot of this was done by about 100 years ago But if you read the mathematics papers, it's really hard to understand what the heck they're talking about, at least to me. And so I've been uh, playing around with a a mathematical notation technique that uh, makes a lot of this, I think, a lot easier to understand. And kind of uh, uh, re-translating a lot of these old papers into this notational technique to see if I can make it a lot easier to figure out how you see the relationship between what equation you've got and the shape that it represents. Yeah, one of the things I'm hoping to do in the, bio, uh, in the biographical writing is talk more about Eastern University of Michigan, too, because uh, a lot of good stuff was done there, and it hasn't been publicized very much. A lot of the times you read computer history, and it's like, oh, Stanford did this, MIT did that, Utah did so-and-so, and, and, and so forth. But uh, I was at the University of Michigan for... Uh, almost eight years. Four years as an undergraduate, two years as a graduate student, and two years afterwards as a as a uh, just an employee in the computing center. And a lot of cool stuff was done there. <laughs> and it, that also was a good, you know, outbed of, of of getting uh, my skill level to the proper point that when I went to Utah, I could walk in and finish a PhD in two and a half years with a bunch of new stuff in it because I already knew the background.
0: I must admit, I I was ignorant of University of Michigan as being a significant computer graphics contributor, and I try to research these interviews as thoroughly as I can. So, I guess yeah, that, I'm...
1: that's why, why, why biographical writing is is uh, interesting to me. Uh, University of Michigan, uh, uh, Jim Foley was a graduate student there who wrote the co of the, the Foley and Van Dam textbook. Yep, and uh, and also. Uh, Bill Joy was uh, an undergraduate there when I was there. Went and started Sun, and uh, he in fact was a student in one of the courses that I taught. It's uh,
0: yeah, I mean, it's it is just really hard to uh, piece together some of this history. Yet it's so important that we kind of have an accurate. It's funny because we still have the luxury of being able to speak to most of the people, and so it's a great time to make sure we can get this right. Um,
1: yeah, well, I mean, there are a lot of different uh, uh, things going on in different places, and some of them have gotten written up and others haven't, and uh, I know there's probably a lot of other universities where cool stuff was done that, you know, since I wasn't there, I don't know about it, but I'm going to try to write up the Michigan part of it that I uh, that I was experiencing, at least.
0: In the original teapot paper, I forgot to ask you this at the time, the one that uh, was uh, uh, published in the University of Utah that you co-authored, um, Who is the woman in the shot that you're texture mapping onto?
1: (laughs) God, if I know. Um, (laughs) That was originally uh, a picture that I got from a friend at at Michigan. Uh, One of the other graduate students there was doing a uh, thesis on image processing or something like that, and he got that picture, I guess, from somebody at MIT as a sample image to do his uh, experiments with, and I got a copy of it with me that I brought with me to Utah. is just a sample image to do things with. And so when I was looking for things to, what, what else can we plaster onto a teapot? I says, oh, here's a picture of this this, this uh, human face. Let's try that out. And there it is. And so I don't know who, who it was originally.
0: I must admit, I love that original paper because the teapot seems to have the right aspect ratio. It's uh, so often reproduced, uh, squashed, and uh, it's, you know... Seems a shame that the most yeah, historical moment no, I don't, I don't remember if that being... was
1: uh, the squashed version. I thought I thought that was the squashed version that was in the paper. Oh, I thought it looked
0: pretty unsquashed, but maybe I'm wrong. But
1: it looks... I'll, I'll have to take a look. I don't know if you heard the story about that, but uh, um, the original teapot that Martin you know digitized that was in his thesis was you know taller. Yeah, and uh, we uh, we uh, had that. Kind of not uh, only transformed to uh, be in the uh, uh, picture system program when when Martin did it, it was it was just uh, on a Tektronix storage tube display so it wasn't able to rotate it in real time or anything like that but uh, we took the data and put it on the a, on the a, on a, uh, picture system we were just playing around with it and we uh, I guess we were demonstrating to somebody and we said and also you can you know change the the, the vertical scale and so we you know turned the knob and, and made the thing three quarters as tall or something like that. And for some reason or other, we decided to, to save that database and kind of thought that it looked better that way. And so I, that's, the, that's the version that I used from then on.
0: It's, uh, it's yeah, it's the, it's the most iconic thing uh, that we've uh, ever had, I think. Uh, there's a, I don't know who did it. I remember somebody did a C-Graph paper, one of the six fundamental shapes of computer graphics. That was oh, in,
1: yeah, right, yeah. And included the
0: teapot. The tea part part was, yeah, that was yeah. done. So, yeah,
1: it's, a, it's, a, it's actually a rendering primitive, and I don't know if it's in DirectX or in OpenGL.
0: Because in many respects, there's a, an un... I mean, it's almost like if you're in maths, you know the secret codes, the secret codes being that uh, you know, different types of letters, different uh, capitalizations, different even like Greek letters or, versus, or something else tend to represent different things. So yeah, right, if you right. don't if you don't know that, that's fine. But if you do know it, then it makes perfect sense that X, Y, and Z is, you know, at that end of the alphabet we're talking about coordinates. At the other end of the alphabet we're probably talking about, um, you know, variables with A, B, or C. And if we put a Greek
1: letter... Yeah, exactly, exactly. A Greek letter There's a them. lot of subtlety in, in the mathematical notation that uh, that uh, you've kind of learned by osmosis. And I guess the AMS might have some standards for uh, mathematical notation. Uh, maybe Donald Knuth's tech, uh, T-E-X spelling uh, program probably contributed to that as well, trying to to standardise uh, some of the mathemat- mathematical usage.
0: It does seem to me that that's the bridge that we've yet to build in, say, an organisation like SIDGRAPH, in that quite often I'll go to a paper or hear of a paper and the maths will be almost... Uh, a wall for me entering it and I've got a degree in pure maths and, and yet like, sometime later I'll realise that the paper is significant and I'll go back and kind of wade through the maths and then I'll make sense of what's going on and then there's a sort of aha moment where you start to sort of piece it all together but it's not an easy bridge to cross between looking at a SIGGRAPH paper in the proceedings and then appreciating the subtleties of what might be a really great algorithmic advance, would you agree?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's- There's always this disconnect sometimes between uh, people who invent something and being able to communicate it to someone else. And somebody who has, you know, good skill at inventing things doesn't necessarily have a good skill at communicating it. And it has to have sat around and been sort of redescribed by other people several times before uh,
2: uh, a wider
1: audience can follow along. So uh,
0: are you still going to be doing educational work? And and what's your relationship these days with SIDGRAPH? I remember seeing you, I think, last when you were down the front of the uh, uh, computer graphics uh, animation uh, theater playing a very elaborate computer game on a very large basis.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I uh, primarily my my uh, contributions these days will be through, uh, I guess, through my website, which is barely barely functional at this point, but I'm hoping to put the put all my mathematical and, and, and uh, historical musings up on that, and that'll be the primary way that I'm able to communicate it to the outside world these days.
0: What's the URL for that?
1: Uh, jimblin.com.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Well, I can't thank you enough for taking time to talk to us and walking through some of these issues. It's been a great honor to talk to you, sir. Thank you very much.
1: Okay, thank
2: you. Well, that was great, Mike, and uh, thanks to Dr. Blinn for speaking with us for such a long time. That was a very I, – I, truly, the bookend of that with the Dr. Ray Smith is great stuff. I'm anxious to hear what you find where you go next with this series.
0: Uh, me too. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much, Jeff, and uh, thank you guys for listening. We appreciate it.
2: All right. Before we close out, I'd like to thank our FX Insider members who support the site through their contributions. As a thanks for donations, uh, made as part of the FX Insider program, we give you access to exclusive additional content, things like member-only articles, additional FX breakdowns, and more. You can find details over at fxguide.com and then click the FX Insider tab. In addition to the FX podcast, which you've been listening to, we do two other regular audio podcasts. First, the VFX Show, which reviews visual effects in current releases as well as classic films. And then the RC podcast covers the ever-changing landscape of digital cinematography. We'd also recommend our HD video podcast, FX Guide TV. And check out our sister site, fxphd.com, that offers extensive online visual effects training. Well, that'll do it for this FX podcast. My partners, Mike Seymour and John Montgomery, we'll see you on the next FX podcast.
0: Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories
1: or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is Copyright FX Guide LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the
0: expressed written consent of FX Guide.